Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Andrew Lee and myself are your co-hosts for today, and we're talking about something a little different. We're talking about how to develop an online presence to promote your science. Now, often we think that this is something as simple as presenting one or two papers a year and maybe presenting at a conference and job's done. But there's a little bit more to it than that. On the other hand, if you talk to a lot of people who do marketing online, they have a very different view about the amount of effort you need to put in. So we're here specifically to talk about how to develop online presence as it applies to microbial researchers and bioinformaticians. We're all super busy. So what we want to talk about here today is really some simple changes you can make that will work passively with some big returns for you. So yeah, how to make an online presence, how can it help you, what works, what doesn't work. So let's start off uh, with Lee and Andrew. I want to talk about what do you feel is different between when people talk about online digital marketing stuff, online presence, between, say, commercial space and academia? Well, one thing I've noticed is uh, commercial, they'll try and sell you stuff like like there's no tomorrow you you get these sales guys emailing all the time you get adverts in your face you get a constant bombardment but you don't get that with research it's very much passive and it's like someone will spend years working on a paper and then silently drop it into the ether and it may appear on pubmed it might be in a good journal but they do nothing to actually tell anyone that here i've got this great work i've found this great thing off you go and they don't pull out the major points. They don't say, this is why it's great. I don't want to read like a 20 or 50 page paper to find out this amazing result buried on page 39. I want it up front and I want to know it quickly and in nice, easy to consume format. So that's where we, we don't do very well in academia. We don't really sell our science, sell the work that we've done to other research and to other scientists. And we, we need to do a much better job with that. Yeah, I'd say in, in government also, it's, you are part of the collective, for better or worse. And I think everyone works really well as a team and you promote something, but it goes up on the CDC website. No one personally gets attributed. It's CDC saying this, right? So if you do like a lot of work towards something, then you're still kind of obscured and and nobody knows that you did it. You're, you're a faceless bureaucrat. So how do you locate a researcher? So it's different to how you would say find a reputable you know, carpenter or something, or look up someone, <laughs> or look up for a good restaurant or something like that, the way you, you do that process. How do you find a researcher? You're at a conference, you see a talk that you kind of like, or a poster you like, you want to find out more, but you're hiring, you're, someone says this guy does, this guy or gal does great work. What's your process? What the, the premise is already that you're already involved in the community, right? So the first step is going to conferences or starting to read the literature, the thing that you like, and you find some kind of book in there. And then 
if you do like somebody, then yeah, how do you look them up? I, I like that question a lot. I guess I, I usually start with Google Scholar. I don't know. What about you, Andrew? Yeah, that'd be my first port call. Not a uh, charter named Google, not even Google Scholar. Hopefully they have a Google Scholar profile, which so many people don't, which is shocking, really. But if you're talking to a librarian, they'll give you a different answer. They'll say, oh, well, you looked them up on Scopus or on PubMed. You do this kind of search to look for this author in this organization, and it's much more targeted. Whereas Google can be a bit rough and ready, but it does usually find the person you're looking for. Often you might have to click in on Google image search as well. You know what they look like and their name, but they might have a common name, you know, when you got to kind of go, oh, yeah, that's the person I'm at the conference. Yeah, that's definitely them. You might be biased for the for the library stuff, huh? Slightly, yeah. I've been hearing a lot about it from my wife. So everything that you guys have pointed out of where you would start with are things that a researcher can manage themselves very easily, actually. it's Everything sort of runs with a different account, but... You just have a, a keychain of different accounts to manage everyone's interactions with things like Scopus or Google Scholar and so on. And it doesn't take that long to set up. I so guess I'm this conversation is already going towards like, you should probably start having some kind of online presence, like some profiles. Yeah, I think so. But I like your previous point, Lee, like you're already in the community and you're already invested. And I think that for me is one of the critical differences between how someone who's marketing something to to an audience, to a set of customers or clients, whereas we're sort of marketing to a set of peers who are in a community with us and they know about us or they know someone we've worked with or they know a co-op or they know whatever. And they can, we're already kind of, they always say like the first problem is you need to kind of establish or they need to be aware of you or they need to, you've got to get your foot in the door kind of thing. They have all this different lingo. And it's like, we already get, we get that for free. And really, it's just capitalizing on that when, when someone does want to look us up because we're producing our work. Like people see our papers. They see, even if you don't publish, if you're quite junior, still in PhD or whatever, and you might not have a publication out, there are outputs you're putting out. You're putting posters out in conferences or you're putting, you think your lab is doing stuff. Your name is listed with your lab. So when they look up your boss, they see you and they go, oh, this is this person. And they click through. And if that thing is like nothing, if there's nothing behind that, when they start clicking through, it's really disappointing for me. I find it very, very disappointing when I try to find out more about someone and this, even the basic stuff is just not available. Or it's just their name and their photo and that's it. No other information whatsoever. Yeah. Name, photo, they work in this department. Like, okay. Or often not even. I, I When I worked in Sanger for many years, they had a policy where they didn't list the staff on a on a directory it was only the PIs and that only changed uh, much more recently where then they started taking photos and having personal pages for each employee so it's quite a quite a different thing so if you're if you are like a first year PhD student in bioinformatics or related are you kind of indicating that the first steps would be to make sure you get on the lab web pages or if you're at a conference make sure you get listed I think if you ask people about if you ask like a marketing person or online person or people who interested in search engines, they will say the best place to put yourself is your organization's website, especially if it's an academic or government one, because those in a search engine always rank highest. They are reputable brick and mortar organizations. They are trusted. 
So you want to associate yourself with that thing. They already have, and it's easy for a PhD student or a researcher or anybody, because you already have a space normally. I know that they have profile pages. If you're part of a doctoral training program in the UK, they always have, a, they usually have a page for the, all of the students of that cohort, which you can kind of get modified. You can add to that profile. If you're a researcher or staff, they always have a staff. Usually these days, they always have a staff page if you look people up. 60% of the time it works every time kind of thing. But that's the best place to start because that's the first thing that's going to come up. That's the first, and everyone's going to see, oh, it's Lee at Georgia. Like they're going to click on it. That's that, like, yeah, I believe that's a real place. And I will click on the webpage and see, well, whatever you write there, that's like the first impression. So yeah, go for it. Make the most of that. And then if you do have publications, Google Scholar is probably the next easiest thing to do because as soon as you sign in, it says, which are your publications? You click, click, and there you go. And then Google self-promotes their own stuff in the search results. So if someone's looking for a random paper, they will push your profile higher. Yeah, but only if you claim the profile. That's the thing I've noticed. If you don't claim the profile, it starts shifting down to the bottom of the first page. If you take control of it, it's like the top top five easily and it takes five minutes because you just have to verify your academic email if you want and yeah exactly just just tidy up your publications and say which are yours and that's it it automatically pulls in everything else from from crawling it from pubmed or whatever so you don't have to do anything once it's set up and one of the good things actually about uh, Google Scholar is if, if it finds different copies of your paper in different places around the, the net, it'll link those together to make it as easy as possible for someone to find stuff. Because sometimes you'll get, even if you have an open access paper, the, the publisher will block it and demand that you pay, I don't know, $50 to rent it for 48 hours, like, like some kind of blockbuster thing. But actually, Google often like link to the preprint, that kind of thing, if you have it. So it, it makes it quite, quite easy to find papers. Yeah, it's really good. It's also really good for merging preprints and publications so that the citation count all contribute to one paper. I never thought about merging the preprint stuff with my publications. Okay, good tip. Yeah, it's really handy because otherwise when you're trying to, because then you, you add them up anyway. Like I think if you were ever going to talk about how many things, how many times has this been cited, you would include both the preprint and the final peer-reviewed paper in that count. So it just does it for you once you merge it. Something a lot of organizations push is the uh, ORCID IDs, where you yeah. get like a unique, big, long, random number that I never can remember. And then you're supposed to put that in if you're reviewing or if you're you're authoring papers, that kind of thing. And then it links backwards. It can be a bit hit and miss. Sometimes you, some journals will take ORCIDs and automatically update everything. Other times you have to go in and manually add it later on. So it doesn't work as easy actually as Google Scholar, but it is meant to be more curated and more stable. Orc ID I think has backing from a lot of academic institutions and the it's actually, I, I'm not sure which publishing groups, but I have run into publishing groups that make it mandatory that you provide an Orc ID as an author. I want to say nature publishing group, but I'm not 100% sure. Anything with that, which is that horrible editorial manager backend usually allows you to log in with uh, ORC IDs. So I always said, I always talked about it as ORCID IDs, but now that you're saying it, it makes perfect sense. It's ORC ID. 
I've, I mentally say orc ID, but you started saying orchid, and I was like, that's a cool name. <laughs> it is. I, was, like I would say that. You know? I thought it is orchid. They even color code the ORC as one color and the ID as another. <laughs> I've always been saying it for as orchid ID. Orchid is good. I th- I'm not sure what it's actually pronounced. Open researcher and contributor ID. Great. I, I'm sure that's a backronym. All right. I got it. On their FAQ, how should work ID be pronounced? Answer. As an international organization, we have encountered many different types. What is the right way to say it? What is the right way to say its name? Is it work ID or orchid or or Sid? I guess What's it? we are not we are not that picky as long as you register and use your ID. <laughs> but for those who want to know, Orc ID has two syllables and a hard C. What? Phonetically, it is phonetically it is pronounced as orchid. I usually tell people it is pronounced like flower orchid, but spelled without the H. There you go, orchid. I'm sorry. I win. All right, you win. But then it's orc ID. It's Orchid ID then, so it's like double ID. Yeah, we'll add that to the show notes. Feel free to discuss amongst, yeah, everyone can discuss what the proper thing should be. Maybe we should put that as a poll. Or not. But yeah, Orc, Orc, Orchid is a bit fiddly sometimes. I like it because it sort of maintains a, a CV. It's good to keep track of things for yourself. Uh, you can add in things. You can add in extra information like your employment record, education record, all the dates for that. So when you need to write in a fill in a form, you can just go and look at it. It pulls in the publications, but it also allows you to put in grant funding, awards, and peer review. It tracks peer review. Is it not? Yeah, it's a new thing now that most journals are trying to get peer review acknowledged. They won't say which paper you've reviewed but they will say this guy has, or this gal has reviewed for us and you can have it linked to your ID. And so they'll, they'll update the ORC ID record automatically if you let them. What's that? The ORC ID? Or- Orchid, Orchid, right? Orchid. Orchid. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> but I think that leads into another resource that I like. You guys might not use it called, called Publons. I signed up for, and I technically use it, but I never, I don't think I've ever logged in. <laughs> So I don't really know why I do it. Tell me why I do it. So this replaces Web of Science Researcher ID. So for the librarians out there, this is an account that allows you to measure, to, to to manipulate what's shown on your Web of Science, which is- Which is like a commercial company? Yeah, it used to be, it used to be Reuters. I don't know who owns it now. Is it Thompson Web of Science? It's probably on Bailsford. It's one of those things where it's sort of owned a little bit by everybody, I guess. But what it is, is it's a citation database and it's a paper, like a publication database. And I don't think we use it so much, but in other spheres, I know particularly like for uh, social sciences, they use this database a lot to look up papers. And you have, and authors have a profile on it. And if you're someone who's not coming from specifically our sphere and you're looking for papers or you're trying to find things like citation metrics about someone, you might be using Web of Science to calculate that. So it's good to keep an eye on it. So that's one thing that you get with the Publons account. But the main thing of the Publons account is that it tracks your peer review work. So when you review for a journal anonymously, you notify Publons, you just sort of shoot them an email, or you can, if the journal is hooking it into things, it'll come up any automatically. 
and they will add it to your profile. So you can show how many times you've reviewed for, what journals you reviewed for. So now mine has, if you look up my profile, it shows you that I seem to regularly review for uh, microbial genomics. So that's good to know. And for me, I forget, like I forget what I've reviewed. I just sort of do it. So then when I want to write like, oh, I'm like a scientist and I do things and I help out with peer review and I've done eight times for microbial genomics and I've done a couple for nature communications or look at me, I'm fantastic. It's great for that kind of fodder which you need to add to applications. I mean, it's an important thing to do. Although you are giving your data away to a huge commercial company worth billions so that they can then use it and sell it on back to your organization in a different format. That's the that's the thing of being free. If you're not paying for it, are you the customer or are you the product? Yeah, it is an interesting scholarly communications question. The resource is there. It's it's handy. I think, yeah, that is a that is a thing. Publons and this sort of thing is kind of has that commercial black box behind it, which is not as nice. I'm, I'm looking through it. I search for your name and I search for my name. It's a nice interface. That's a really nice interface, and it's got a lot of nice metrics, which you can just copy paste into things. It says I've only reviewed four things, so I guess I have not been loading things into there. I've been doing I've been doing thankless reviews, I guess. If the journal allows you to, you can have it linked directly to the ORCID, and you can bypass the whole Publon thing if you're not comfortable with that. That's fine. But either way, I think it's important that we sort of measure how much peer review we do do, because we do it for free. It's a community service. I spend, how long does it take you to review a paper? Five minutes if it's terrible. <laughs> That's the right answer. I'm slow at it. So, sometimes I'll just read like the abstract and I'll go, there is not a chance that I'm going to re review this or it should be like an editorial reject. And often I'll tell the editor, just reject this straight out and don't bother actually doing any more with it. Do you guys not do that? I guess I just say no to the, I don't, I don't even accept the, the review, if it looks terrible, I guess. Or if it looks outside my field, definitely. Like, I'll get things that might be for foodborne diseases, which sounds like it could be my field, but then it's all about the serotyping part of the wet lab and that's totally outside of my of my purview. So I, I say no. When I get those misfired to me, maybe I'm also avoiding really bad papers. I don't know. Yeah, I tend to do the same. I kind of screen... Because they give you the abstract and the and, and at least part of the author list. Not and always. Not always, not always the author list, but the editor. And normally if I don't know the editor and I don't know the journal, I'm like, mm. and if it doesn't, if the abstract doesn't jump out of me, I'll just say, look, this isn't, I don't think this is my thing. I think that this is a nice thing to do. Like if I know that it's terrible, but I know it can be improved, I actually do spend time critiquing and telling them what to do. And I don't, I don't have to, I can just reject it in five minutes, but I guess I'm being a little bit nice. Yeah, I think ones that are, that you like, but they've kind of got the sort of 50-50, those take the longest because I do try to critique them and help them out. I kind of want them to to do well with it. And those, those, but then that takes up like after, I usually do it after hours and it usually takes me three, three at least three hours, you know, per review. You're still faster than me. I take like two days. I'm so slow. I need lessons. Maybe another podcast you guys can teach me how to do that. How to review, how to review a paper, or like how to lose a guy in 10 days, how to review a paper in 10, in 10 minutes. Great title. Let's not forget that one. All right, let's one. do it. All right, we'll do that next time. <laughs> well, let's move on. I think there's other resources we can talk about. I mean, Twitter. 
Yay. Twitter. Twitter. I mean, when did you all start being on Twitter as a in, in that sort of research professional academic capacity? 2007. I, I'm what you call like an early adopter. Congratulations. I guess this is a little outside of this podcast, but what made you decide to go that early into Twitter? One of my friends set up like an email service for, I don't know, news alerts and Twitter at that time would send an SMS to your phone for like people you followed. And so that's why I set it up initially, get the tweets by text. Of course, (laughs) Twitter obviously realized that this is horrifically expensive and uh, stopped doing that very shortly after that. They were really lucky that they managed to at that same point when it's when they realized that they couldn't afford this anymore the smartphones and having like this kind of always on internet became affordable and became like a thing so and mobiles were like powerful enough to have an app that shows something like twitter so they managed to transition without too much of an issue but it was based around the size of a text message which makes which is totally anachronistic now because nobody doesn't do that anymore at all I had a similar thing as Andrew when I started, but I started back in, I was still in undergrad. So we had to use Twitter as part of computing, learning about social media and all these different platforms. Interesting. So back back to Twitter, how does it help you guys in revealing yourself to the world and, and broadcasting yourselves? How does it help with your online presence, I guess? Well, I suppose that's where I get all my papers from and preprints from, and I don't get them from anywhere else. And that's where I promote all my papers and stuff like that and podcasts and whatnot. It's kind of my link into the wider community that I don't necessarily know, but they can tune in if they feel like. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Whenever I have a paper at all, I'll push it out there and five people will like that tweet, I guess. I don't have as many people as, as somebody if I started in 2007, but some people see when I when I tweet. It's quality, not quantity. Yes. Are there other ways that, that having a Twitter helps you out? I think you get a lot of casual discussion, or at least you used to. You used to get a lot of casual discussion on Twitter about publications as they came up or discussion around, it used to be a good way to push blog posts it used to, and, and other materials, press releases or whatever you've got floating around. Or, or even like GitHub code and you've got, you've done a project, you've done a release, you tweet it, whatever it is, because people are on it. They're sort of, they're thumbing through all of the, the doom scrolling through all of the tweets. Anyway, they might see your thing and click through. And there used to be some pretty heated discussions on, on stuff like what's the best read mapper and all that back in circa 2000 and 2009, 2010 kind of thing. Are you thinking of a specific conversation? Cause now I want to know about it. No, no. Well, there is a like controversial papers in your field. Like there was that SARS-CoV-2 paper recently and that got published in MDPI vaccines. And that, you know, that got slammed on Twitter and then people piled in and then the journal retracted it. Yeah, I mean, if you want a modern example of where Twitter is powerful, you can look at the SARS-CoV-2 coverage, especially coming out of virological posts or what Dextrain puts up or so on. That's really powerful. I mean, that's where you're, if you want, if you want the skinny on what's going on, you can just look up those accounts, just keep track of those and exactly what's going on. That's good. And and speaking of earlier, when you said you would link to like a blog post, I, I see people just doing whole threads on Twitter now and they put a little thread emoticon. I don't think people do 
are linking to blogs too much anymore. I had a blog back in the day. It was andrewjpage.com and I had it for about 10 years. I've let it expired in the past few years. It's not, uh, it's not something I do anymore. As a LaTeX blog, like for my PhD, I did lots of LaTeX and stuff like that. And so it was just random place to put all my scripts and it was actually quite popular. But then there was no need for it. I didn't want to maintain it. I didn't want to host it. And it just kind of disappeared, unfortunately. There's a few blogs, and I think blogs are really powerful, but I, I think we, we can discuss blogs like on its own, but there are a few that, that have persisted over the years. And that's like, Phil Ashton has started up posting on his one again. Titus Brown always has stuff. Mick Watson always has stuff. They're, they're, they're people who've been doing this forever and they, they always release their information through these, these sites. And it is useful. And the only way I check them is if it shows up on the Twitter feed. That's true. But I, but I guess we can talk about personal websites and blogs like as, as a resource and what you both think of that. I guess they persist. Uh, even if you move jobs or whatever, your personal website will stay there and act as a portfolio. It's quite good when you're trying to hire someone and they do have a personal website that you can go and see and check out all the different projects, kind of all the different linked work that they've done. Often uh, it's kind of buried. It might be in GitHub, but it might be buried in 20 different repos. And maybe they've done one or two really good pieces of work and then the rest are just minor tweaks to existing open source software, but it can be kind of difficult to untangle those. Whereas if you do have a, a personal website, it can help signpost to those pieces of work your website andrew did it, someone buy it it redirected to volvo cars well it could be worse then in terms of redirections yeah i just get a blank page okay that's probably better so um, i mean i think the personal web page the downside of that is it's a thing you it's your thing you have to look after it so things like you have a WordPress WordPress site and that can stay up for years, but those have eventually, they usually have some security vulnerabilities of, over time. They can get hacked and you can have weird, weird things showing up when you don't really want them to. So it is like a thing, like it can be up, but you kind of still have to look after it. And it's coming back to what you're saying, Andrew, it's just sort of not at a point, it's sort of too much effort. It can be like a, it can be quite a lot of effort to keep something like that together, and it doesn't necessarily look that nice if it's if the last post was five years ago and it's got all of like outdated information from two jobs ago or whatever. It doesn't look good. So it is like out of all of the resources we've talked about, I think that's the one I'd recommend the least because of the amount of overhead to keep it going. Well, thinking back about my blog, probably all the information is still valid now because LaTeX hasn't changed very much in the past 20 years. Yeah, there are definitely processes which sort of generate a static site, which is just very secure because it's very simple. And those, I think, is probably the best way if you're thinking of an implementation of how to do it. Obviously, you need to know a little bit of how to code it up or what platform to use. There are different ones for like um, whatever language, like Ruby or JavaScript, uh, or, or Python, they're different. There's usually like a favorite one to do that sort of static site, but that would be the best way to do it. I've seen a lot of people using GitHub actually to host their personal web pages. Yeah, so that's running Jekyll and Ruby in the background. And then it's, but, but you don't need to know about that. It just takes your markdown files and then just renders something for you as long as you write it the right way. And that's free hosting to have that up and it's like a static thing. 
and you can just put that it'll be something something.github.io and you just can point that so it can be lcats.github.io yeah so, i actually really like that a lot it was really easy to set up actually for our podcast website yeah for the podcast website we use it for the microbinfi conference as well it was super easy to do free it's there forever so one thing you should do actually is uh, sign up to GitHub if you are doing coding and uh, doing bioinformatics applications and just make sure that people can find it easily. Like don't have some random name, like, I don't know, Lighthouse Seagull 52. You want uh, something that people can find you maybe with your name. And then you can use your GitHub page as like a portfolio of your professional work that you've done over maybe multiple different employers. I know not every employer will allow you to do it. And then also within any scripts that you make, if those make it into Conda or whatever, make sure you put your name inside so that people know that you made this stuff. So when they do like dash help or dash H that they will see, oh, this is Andrew's script or this is the paper he wrote, which underlies this actual script. And maybe I should go and read it and cite it. It's a very simple thing you can do, but most people kind of forget that. Totally agree. Definitely like in all of your scripts, you should have like dash dash help or even dash dash citation, something like that. Give yourself credit. Yeah, definitely. Definitely worth putting that up on, on all of your code. And also I'll add like maybe people are a bit reluctant to put up code because it's not quite polished and it's not something that's designed for other people to use perhaps it's like a dirty script that does some munging of data or something like that it doesn't matter if if you're in a state and that's all you've got to show put it up it's worth it's worth it than having nothing something you're trying to achieve and by hell or high water you manage to do it you write something that achieves it that's that's a plus in 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 my book if you're able to do that even just as basic as getting a job like Honestly, if somebody shows me that they've done a script and they've done something and they show, and I'm not going to go spy on them on, on Google or something, but if they have like a URL going back to their script, it lets me look at their script and it lets me see what they've done and lets me objectively judge that. Sort of going off topic, but I think it's sort of this, it's the devil kind of, kind of situation. Like even if the person you can assess, like most people are actually much better than they think they are. That's the first thing. But even if they're not quite to the standard that's required for a particular role, it's good. Like an employer will want to know that because they might still say like, yes, this person still has at least has demonstrated where they're at. It's a technical sort of difference of where they need to get to but they've got everything else they've got enthusiasm they've got a good attitude they've got a good background on the on the rest of the science so that helps you make that decision and then that makes you more likely to to talk to them and take them to the next stage of the, of the process if there's no information there's no judgment you're going to just say well i don't know i can't i have this project i have two years to do it i don't want to take a chance also, when you're doing stuff publicly as you go along, like other people can see it. And that's a good thing because then maybe someone is looking for something similar or is going to design the same tool and then they go and contact you. That's a, that's a bonus. And two has a better than one. And you can maybe get in more publications or people can find you much quicker because it's established. Great I think, point. I think it's good in terms of transparency and honesty to just be like, yeah, it's not perfect, but here it is. This is what I can do. And that's, that's a respectful thing. Putting yourself out there, that's a lot of courage. Like, 
it, it means a lot if, if you see that. So definitely for, I know a lot of students tune in who don't necessarily have all these fancy programs. Just put the code up, it's fine. If it's some dirty R script that just does, does some plots, it's, it's good to know that you can do it. Yeah, we're still not Reddit. <laughs> we're st there aren't a lot of trolls looking at your code right now. So you can put it up and get actual constructive um, criticisms when you put it up. And then something uh, really self-promotional that I learned from Nabil was to put the MicroBinFu podcast link in my email signature. And that has spawned uh, hopefully a few people uh, tuning in and finding it. But it's such a simple thing. And I had it hadn't even occurred to me until I saw it in Nabil's email signature, then I stole it. And I need to do that. Great idea. Yeah, I think that's a good tip for everybody. People do thumb through that email signature. And it's a good, not, don't go nuts. I got an email today where someone had written, they had like 20 different of these little pictures from the organization. There's little pictures like blah, 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 excellence, 100 years, blah, 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 something like I know like some people have to do that, but that's like, no, don't go that, don't, don't go overboard. Don't write a thesis in, the, in, in every email signature, but pick two links, pick two links that are really important to your best foot forward kind of thing. Institutional website, GitHub, or Google, if, if your organization website is an up to, up to par, Orc ID, GitHub, Google Scholar, GitHub or your Twitter, whatever, whatever you use the most, whatever you want people to kind of hit first and get their first impression of you, pick the pick two of those links and, and put them in there. And people will click too. It's like, yeah, it's a slow day. We got this email like, yeah, okay, what's this about? Right, you put like little emoticons next to the URL also or something? No, no. <laughs> I, try to, I try to keep my emails plain text if I can, but what, what would you put like winky face? <laughs> No, like, oh, like okay. that makes me question it now. No, like like a microphone. Oh, maybe. There's a there's an emoticon, and I think online presence. All of what we're saying also applies in terms of CVs and applications for things. So plug your GitHub in your CV, or in the or in your cover letter, or in the tons of forms that the HR makes you fill out. Just put it in there. It helps point to things to have it's it's a thing showing you have like a personality you have stuff going on and you've outputs that are not just purely academic like papers and stuff this is sort of a su subjective question again would you would you self-promote like in at the end of your talk at a conference or in your poster hell yeah oh yeah okay depends on the talk but <laughs> if you think about any talk is kind of an advertisement for something else because I mean, unless you're getting like a nice one hour slot, which you don't get, or I don't get, you get 10 minutes. You're not going to explain a paper in 10 minutes. You're going to explain like one thing. You're going to say, this is great. If you want more information, click, here's the tiny URL, click to the manuscript or whatever. Good. Or is that the opposite? And I, I usually get too much time and I don't know how to fill it up. And so I usually shove in the relevant MicroBinFi podcast episode that we have because you always have one that's relevant to something. Are we getting to that stage already? That's great. We are, yeah. Particularly for the coronavirus stuff, it's like I gave a few talks recently and it was always last slide or second last slide is just here's like 20 podcasts you can, uh, episodes you can listen to on this exact subject. Very good. Yeah, literature, GitHub, Twitter. One thing I used to do, I still do, is I put my Twitter handle in on the title page for talks. So it'll be title, Nabil Fridali Khan, 
at happy underscore Khan. And that's just like, because if it's like a random person at a conference, like that's easier for them to get in touch with me and we can have a conversation about what's going on in the meeting over instead of going to email, which tends to get a bit lost or whatever. That's my preferred form of contact. Now, maybe Twitter is not your preferred form of contact. You want to use email, that's fine. Put that in. I think Twitter's better for that sort of scenario, but whatever, different strokes. But put something. That's the one thing we can learn from the marketing is like have this call to action, always present the thing and then give somewhere else to go. What's the most inappropriate place that you've seen someone advertise something? Most inappropriate place. People are generally well-behaved. I think. Yeah. I think academics haven't really figured that much out about all these soft platforms for promotion yet. And they haven't figured out how to abuse them that much. The one that sticks out to me in terms of self-promotion where it's just not on is is sort of self-citations of papers that just aren't relevant. I've seen that a couple of times. It looks really bad. You know, like, because you cite one paper, just make the point, right? So you cite the first one. You don't cite every single paper you've done that says the same thing over and over again. That's basically referring back to what you found in the first publication. So it'll be like Ali Khan et al, 2017, 2018, 2019. And you're like, no, no. Yeah, that does look bad. Like, no, that's really bad. But that's, that's the more traditional thing, I think. Yeah, it's, I haven't seen too much gaming on, on online platforms that much. You made a really good point about getting this kind of profile or that kind of profile online, but they're usually dependent on citations and publications. What do you do if you're just starting out and you don't have any publications? Yeah, this is, this is a tough one because ultimately as researchers, our currency are publications. And if you don't have one, it's, it's a bit slow. It's, it's difficult to kind of get traction. You need to think about what you're actually trying to communicate and what you want people to be aware of. And it'll depend on your career stage of what you want to promote, right? So if you're usually people who don't have publications are going to be like fresh out of PhD, young PhD students or early early postdoc kind of thing. What you want to promote, you want to show that you have a bunch of interests, you have a bunch of technical skills that you're able to communicate, like, you know, pick which sort of thing you want to promote. And then you can do things like, if you're allowed to, now this is dependent on what your organization and and line managers and bosses say about this, but you can publish your slides from presentations and posters online on services like Figture. It'll give you a DOI, so like a fixed link to it forever. And you can put that on that institutional website or on the blog or whatever we've been talking about or tweet it out or whatever that you've done a thing and there's like a, there's an output that someone can go to. And that's a really easy one, but do check. Don't just do it without people knowing. You kind of have to check with all the co-authors that it's okay to do that. But most people are usually pretty chill because you've already presented it at a conference anyway. And it's just more promotion of that. Worst case, if they're very cagey about it, you might have to redact stuff, like take the strain names out of the figures or something like that. But there is like a path you can come up with that will allow you to show that you can do a thing without necessarily giving the game away. Other things you can do is we've been talking about blog content. Blog content was great. It can be, blog content can be a bit tricky because it's like, if you're, especially if you're younger, you might, they might feel like you're, you're not able to just talk about the science that you do. 
and maybe you feel that you don't have the experience to talk about big concepts of the field yet, but you can just talk about uh, a particular method, a protocol. How do you use a protocol? What kit is good for this? What algorithm is good for that? Compare assemblers or whatever, something really primitive that you've kind of had a sketch at, had a go at for yourself, and you can put that up. If you have a, a wet lab protocol or uh, even a computational one, you can put it on protocols IO. That again is this online free service to promote protocols, methodologies. And that again gives you a DOI. That again is something that, that I think that actually gets indexed in ORCID, ORCID as well. So that's like an output that you can just use. We've talked about GitHub. So yeah, scripts, get them on GitHub. If you don't like GitHub or you don't want to use GitHub, you can use GitLab. You can, I, and at a push, you can use Bitbucket, but it doesn't matter, get the code out there somewhere onto some sort of uh, version repository. Then you might find out of all of that, for some reason, nothing you're actually doing is you can, is, is everything is too sensitive and you can't put anything out. So no scripts, no methods, no nothing. You can, at the end of the day, like at least just write short reviews or praises for publications you read. So just the kind of classic reaction video kind of YouTube content about pa papers. There's absolutely no original work that you're putting in. You don't have to say anything about what you're doing. Just talk about other people's work. Did you like it? What did you like about it? How does it help you? Um, I've seen some really good stuff about that. Like who was it who just put out a big thing about someone, someone had like a nice blog post about MASH and I'm forgetting right now who whose blog I was reading. That's going to kill me. Whose blog was I reading? John Lee's. It was, no, it was Phil. Uh, he put uh, out a good, good blog post about all that stuff. And it wasn't, it wasn't like he made original bioinformatics, like sketching work or anything. Right. But he was looking over it and seeing how it fit his purpose. And it was a great article. Yeah. No, that one was really interesting. I read that one. There was another one about genome sketches from John Lee's, which is also really interesting, had no specifics about what he was doing but it was super helpful even yeah, just to talk like a toy example. How does this pull this thing apart? How does it work? And it, and it can be just the same thing about any publication. It's just, I think the thing is, is that you just want to show people what you're about and publications are a very easy way to do it because they can just see exactly how you've done a, a body of work, but you can kind of get a lot of stuff out there. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. So, but the one thing I think Andrew will advise to everybody is oh yeah uh don't start a podcast that's a lot of work and you'll just uh, interfere with us and uh, take away our audience so we're, we're happy to work with you though yeah well <laughs> if you started another podcast go for it i i would say go for it because okay yeah, fun but it is a lot of work it's it's unnecessary work it, it is a fair bit of work and uh that's why there's not many of them out there because it's just uh it, it takes a lot of time yeah, no, I think we, we discussed the production process in, in sort of a previous episode. If you're interested, you can have a listen to that and that'll give you some idea of, of the amount of work required. So hopefully that was interesting for everybody. We just wanted to talk about this. When we talk about online presence and when people in our organization prod us about it, we feel that it's very complicated and it's a lot of work. It's not our job to do it. And that is true. It is not our job to necessarily be pushing our agenda every single day, but there are some very simple tactics you can use. And we've gone through a lot of them in this episode 
that you can just make those changes. It will help other researchers find you, find your work. And who knows from that, what will come out? Invitations to work on collaborations, to be co-funded for grants, jobs, just invited speaker spots, uh, just all the list come and want to just hang out, just chat. It's like, hey, come over, come visit. We'll, we'll talk, we'll talk shop about, about whatever it is. So it's, but it's really important that you kind of improve your online visibility. And so that's mainly why we were talking about it so long today. And yeah, so that's it from Andrew Lee and myself. That's it for this episode of the Microbimfy podcast. And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at Microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.